Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and Schools, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you with us here this Saturday morning for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word, October 7th, 2023. Our uh, catechesis this day actually is tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading. We're going to look at those in some detail. Uh, continuing theme here, you, uh, you tend to find this in the church here, regardless of which lections. Lectionary use. Uh, we're using the three year on Wednesday nights at the moment and the one year on Sundays. The um, Regardless, you, you tend to find that themes that go from week to week, um, often between uh, the same readings, so like the epistle week to week will be a continuation, uh, or the, the uh, gospel text will actually continue a theme. And so, as we heard last week, so we'll hear this week a little bit more about how we ought to understand the law. All right. And we've been preaching on that on Wednesday nights too. And I think it's helpful for us to keep law and gospel distinct. Um, also uh, understand the role that these two words from God accomplish. All right. Uh, so let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, our psalm for the week. We pray it one more time. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right, our verse for the week, we say together, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Luke 12, verse 15. And our catechism for the week. Ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. All right, so tomorrow our Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, 
to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves and loves the stranger, gives him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. All right, so what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. All right, so in other words, first commandment, all right, or all the commandments. So I mean, here's what Luther has to say about this chapter. What, and this is uh, from 1525, so after the Reformation has begun. What Moses sets forth here about the second pair of tables, that is the two tablets, right, pertains to the preceding chapter and is intended to emphasize the sin of adoring the calf, the golden calf. For the chapters are um, poorly separated here as in so many other places. We've talked about that in Bible class. Chapter divisions are somewhat arbitrary. Um, 1228, Archbishop of Canterbury is who it's ascribed to, Stephen Langton. Um, Luther often laments on those distinctions. Okay, what is said, however, about the marches and the camps of Israel, the death of Aaron, and the appointment of Eleazar in his place, about the designation of the Levites to carry the ark and have charge of the service, and bless in the name of the Lord, is said either because these things happened just then, or because in these camps Moses put into operation among the Levites what had been commanded on Mount Sinai. Or, as I prefer to believe, because when Eleazar was installed as the new high priest after the death of Aaron, the services of the Levites were revised and reestablished as customarily happens in the daily downfall and change of human affairs. Then, after he uh, brought in these matter, has brought in these matters, Moses returns to the sin committed by worshiping the calf, and after he had attained pardon, he receives the commission to lead the people into the promised land. The allegorical meaning of the calf and the tables also pertains to the preceding chapter. That would be chapter 9 of Deuteronomy. Concerning the tables, Paul teaches us adequately in 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, namely that the, um, the stone tablets or tables are the hard hearts of the people of the law, whereas the people of grace have the fleshy and mild tablets or tables of the heart. So that's 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Go check it out. But the laws are written on stone tables because the work of the law is written in the hearts of all their conscience bearing witness, Romans 2.15. But the hardness of the heart keeps it from being seized with feeling loved, preserved, or fulfilled with action, just as stone tables preserve only written letters but achieve nothing. So hard hearts without the Spirit have the law only as a testimony against themselves. Particularly, the Jewish nation has the law and all of, all of Moses this way as a testimony against itself. All right, so... This is quite clear in the Ten Commandments, and then the golden calf is set in contrast to it, as we heard um, in Exodus and Numbers here not that long ago, right? Is that uh, the law was given actually because of the hardness of Israel's heart, 
to reveal that to them. The calf made of gold is the doctrine of works, which is the perversion of the words and the law of Scripture, a distortion carried through the ministry and artifice of priests, who ought to lead the people instead of doing this. This doctrine is worshipped when the conscience glories and trusts in it, in it rather than in the true God alone. This is what self-righteous must do. Moses, however, seizes it, and when he has burned it with fire and crumbled and pulverized it, he throws it into the stream which flows down the mountain. That is, the true service of the law teaches that sin should be acknowledged and that works together with their teachings are nothing. But that what is necessary is the grace of God which justifies. Right, gospel, we would say. Therefore, this whole teaching is ground up and thrown out, and it is devoured by the stream of the gospel, which flows from the mountain that Christ, that is Christ and fills the earth. From it, Moses gives the people to drink as he shows the gospel to be necessary and drives them toward it through the knowledge of sin. Then Moses returns to his exhortation. He praises the first commandment, saying, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? As though he were saying, This is the sum of the first commandment about which I have said all these things, and on account of which everything previously said was done, that you should fear the Lord your God and walk and love and serve him, and that you should keep the commandments which I command you today. I have said above that for the Hebrews, fear of God has the force of what we call worship of God. And notice the order here, to fear, walk, love, serve, with the whole heart, etc. All these Moses places ahead of what follows to keep the commandments and statutes that you may know that nothing of the outward commandments can be kept which pleases God unless it comes from the heart that fears, loves, obeys, and serves, so that the power of the first commandment, which is faith, may rule and govern in all the commandments and works. Without it, everything else is only a show and a mask. All right. So um, we have this, uh, we have a tendency to do a few things wrong with the law. Um, and what Luther talks about here is to, to miss that uh, it begins with faith, in God, and only then can, from that, can uh, can flow works of love for neighbor, right? So Luther points that out. Also, that that the law um, is obliterated by the gospel, right? That the gospel actually is that which brings repentance of heart, change of mind, as we preached on last Wednesday. Uh, you can go watch or listen to that. And uh, it is the gospel then that gives renewal of life. So forgiveness of sins is the power of God unto salvation that gives life and salvation. So, um, um, the law only exposes sin, right? But does not give the capacity to fulfill it, which we talked about on Wednesday. The other um, danger is that people uh, might think of the law too highly and think that the law um, is the problem, that we, we preach the gospel in its fullness, forgiveness of sins, but we don't preach the law in its full severity, right? And that, that may be true in times and places. And I think we've encountered that um, as we've been going through the commandments. We found that um, that we are weak in our teaching of the commandments, both to our uh, indicting ourselves for our lack of repentance or our lack of obedience, I should say, um, but also that of our children and our family and our neighbors, our communities, etc. So that's that is possible. Um, but in order to have uh, a more lively, active congregation, we don't need more law preaching. We need more gospel preaching. And of course, um, the gospel is always preached. Accompanying, accompanied by the law, the law shows us our sin in order to be forgiven, right? So we only need the law preaching insofar as it leads us to repent, forgiveness of sins by way of the gospel, right? Um, and without faith toward God, um, all of our obedience and our love, um, our even discipleship or discipling, um, all of that is just a mask and a show. It's just optics. It's just religious activity, 
Um, but if it doesn't flow from faith, it's useless before God. It's also important to know. Okay, uh, that's Luther. He has more to say. I mean, maybe you're confused about the circumcising the foreskin of your heart part, uh, but that's again talking about the need to have the heart um, opened, right? To be made of flesh and not of stone, as we hear heard from Ezekiel in Bible study last week. Okay, and now our epistle for tomorrow is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, who all, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, now this is really a fantastic introduction to uh, a book from or I should say a letter, this is an epistle, from Paul to the church in Corinth. Now, as, if, as you continue to read the letter to the, the first letter to the church in Corinth, you find out that they actually, according to their, their way of living as both a congregation and a community, are being completely rebellious to God's word. And yet, notice what, um, what St. Paul starts with here. I give thanks to you. You are sanctified, called to be saints, um, to, to call on the name of the Lord, Right? Grace is yours. Peace is yours. I thank my God that God has given you all that he's given you. He's enriched you with utterance and knowledge. He's given you the testimony. He's confirmed it in you. You've, you've been given every good gift. You're eagerly waiting. He will confirm you to the end. You will be blameless. God is faithful, right? You were called, and of course, he will keep you till the end, right? All of that promise language, right? Gospel language. He starts here, uh, and it's only from there that then Paul can actually admonish um, and uh, encourage them to um, turn away from their, well, rebellious behavior or, or to failure to admonish um, the one who is um, sinning in their midst or those sinning in their midst, right? It's based upon the calling and election of God, which is sure, the gifting of God, which is um, not dependent on our response, right? But it, it is ours um, by his doing, even despite us, as I've mentioned frequently. Right, so Paul can speak of the church of Corinth in a way that um, later on seems like, well, that he's lying about them. Um, I'm reminded of a conversation that we've had about uh, funerals, that it often seems like pastor um, eulogizes the people, speaks of the deceased um, as being a Christian in ways that we never actually seem to have seen um, or heard. Now, I'm not eulogizing their works. I eulogize Instead, speak good words about what God has done in and through them and what he promised to, uh, to the deceased. Is that a lie? No, because based, it's based on God's promises. Did we always see it? Did we even experience it? Maybe, maybe not, right? Um, but I can't put my hope or trust in, um, in my works any more than I, we can put our hope and trust in the promise of salvation for those who we love who have died um, in their works, you see? So that's what Paul's doing here. And in a sense, he's eulogizing them. He's, giving, he's speaking good words about them, despite their rebellion and their lack of, um, of disciplined life. Again, here we see the shortcoming of the law 
that it doesn't give the power to do it. What gives the power, uh, what is the authority or the power um, to bring amendment of life? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he suffered and died for you. He forgives you your sins, right? So live as forgiven people of God, right? And, and it's only, it's not your doing that will do that. It's God, the Holy Spirit, working good fruits in you. You who have now been grafted onto Christ and have been made um, his, his planting, if you like. This is how um, the, let's see, what is, what are we going to share with you? The Formula of Concord Solid Declaration, um, Article 11, God's election and foreknowledge. You'll see, this is, I mean, that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's proclaiming God's election and foreknowledge of these people unto salvation, which is true even despite them, okay? And I think this is important. Um, it, this is a word given for our comfort and that we ought to speak of our salvation in the same way. Listen to what it says, and it's going to actually quote 1 Corinthians here in a, um, at some point. I'm not sure where, but we'll find it. All right. This eternal election or ordination of God to eternal life must not be considered in God's secret, mysterious counsel in a simple-minded way. It is not as though election or God's calling, called to be his saints, you see that in verse 2, his calling um, included nothing further or nothing more belonged to it or nothing more is to be considered in it than that God foresaw who and how many were to be saved and who and how many were to be damned. Right. So that's a simple-minded way to think of it they say. Nor should we think that he only held a sort of military muster such as, this one shall be saved, that one shall be damned, this one shall remain steadfast in faith to the end, and that one shall not remain steadfast. This, If this sounds familiar, um, this is what um, some of the more Calvinistic persuasion would call, uh, or what we would call, what they teach, double predestination. Some are elected unto salvation, some are elected into damnation. Of course, then um, that makes, I suppose that makes God the author of Damnation? Hmm. Interesting. All right. So that's a simple-minded way to think about election or calling. From this notion, many get and imagine strange, dangerous, and deadly thoughts. These cause and strengthen either self-confidence, I'm elect, so I can't, I can't die, right? And lack of repentance, or hopelessness and despair. I'm one of the damned. There's nothing I can. There's not a damned thing I can do about it, right? So people fall into troublesome thoughts and say, before the foundation of the world was laid, God has foreknown His election to salvation. Ephesians one. And God's foreknowledge cannot fail or hindered or be changed by anyone. In view of this, if I am foreknown to salvation, nothing can hurt me. Even if I perform all sorts of shameful sins without repentance, have no regard for the word and sacraments, concern myself neither with repentance, faith, prayer, or godliness, I will and must still be saved because God's foreknowledge must come to pass. If, however, I am not foreknown, nothing helps me anyway, even though I, am, I busy myself with the word, repent and believe, and so on for I cannot hinder or change God's foreknowledge, right? If I'm saved, I'm saved. If I'm damned, I'm damned, and it doesn't seem to matter what I do about it. Hmm. In fact, even when godly hearts have repentance, faith, and good intentions to live by God's grace in a godly way, thoughts like these arise, right? So here's another false notion. If you are not foreknown from eternity to salvation, your every effort and entire labor is no help. This happens especially when we see, or when they see their weakness and the examples of those who have not persevered but have fallen away again. So they look around and say, well, where are all the people that uh, had once received the good news, the gospel, who uh, maybe even confessed their sins and were forgiven, who um, were confirmed in the faith, right? came before the altar and promised never to depart the church, and now they have, right? Maybe all of this is a big waste of time. That's effectively what 
of the confessors here are saying. All right, so now the response. Against this false delusion and thought, we should set up the following clear argument, which is sure and cannot fail. So here's the response. All scripture is inspired by God. It is not for self-confidence and lack of repentance, but for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Right? So the first point, scripture cannot fail. It is the inspired word of God. And it's not given that we would fail to repent and be self-confident, but instead that we would be corrected and be trained in righteousness and be corrected. All right. Also, everything in God's word has been written for us, not so that we should be driven to despair by it, but so that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, Romans 15, 4. Therefore, there is no question that lack of repentance or despair should not in any way be caused or strengthened by the sound sense or right use of this teaching about God's eternal foreknowledge. All right? So we can't say that people are, that God foreknows um, or he has called us unto salvation. That should not be used either to drive us to despair, that there's no hope for us because God did not choose me, or to self-confidence, right? Um, that And no repentance, that there's no need for me to confess because I'm going to be saved either way. Once saved, always saved. That teaching. Um, the scriptures teach this doctrine only to direct us to the word, Ephesians 1.13 and 1 Corinthians 1.7, right? Waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. to encourage, So to direct us to the word, to encourage repentance and godliness and to strengthen faith and assure us of salvation. So that God foreknows those whom he has called is, again, it's given to us to direct us back to his word, to encourage us to repent right? and, and to live godly lives and to strengthen faith and assure us of our salvation. Mm-hmm. If we want to think or speak correctly and use, so it really doesn't speak about the other side. Well, what about those who reject and who, who are damned? Right? That's not the purpose of speaking of God's calling and election or his foreknowledge. If we want to think or speak correctly and usefully about eternal election or the predestination and preordination of God's children to eternal life, we should make it our custom to avoid, here's the key, speculating about God's bare, secret, concealed, and mysterious foreknowledge. That's as to why some are saved and not others. We should not speculate about it. Instead, we should think and speak about how God's counsel, purpose, and ordination in Christ Jesus, who is the true book of life, is revealed to us through his word. In other words, the entire teaching about God's purpose, counsel, will, and ordination belongs to our redemption, call, justification, and salvation. Everything in the Christian church is oriented towards faith for the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. Right? This is why Paul will say, um, strive to make your calling and election sure. That is to remain where your calling and election was promised and give, and is continually given, and then encouraged and reaffirmed, if you like, or even built up. This should be treated together the way that Paul treats them and has explained in the article, Romans 8, 28, Ephesians 1, verse 4 to 10. And as Christ treated it in the parable of Matthew 22, which we'll have in a few weeks, and for, I think, second Sunday in November, actually. Namely, that God, in his purpose and counsel, ordained the following. And then you can read, um, I don't want to read all eight points. I'm not going to read all the eight points for you. Again, this is the solid declaration of the Form of Concord, Article 11, one of our Lutheran confessions that uh, we agree to, we've agreed faithfully teach what God's word teaches, and that uh, we're not going to teach contrary to that in our Christian church. All right, that would require us, of course, to read it. Um, so again, here, like I said, you see what Paul is doing, and it's similar to what we'll do at a Christian funeral, is we will speak of what God promises and is and has accomplished um, by his word, 
we generally don't speak that much of their works because um, if we do, there's the danger, of course, thinking that their works are what save them. Um, or two, what if um, they have little works um, that are evident to us of faith? Well, so what? The judgment is going to come from God, not from us, right? As to their salvation. So we speak about what God has accomplished in them. Were they baptized? Did they hear God's word? Did they receive the sacrament? Yes? Okay. It is enough. <laughs> all right. Uh, of course, this is all then to show you how different God's gospel is from his law. Because his law could never give you that kind of confidence and assurance. Because it's not a gift given. It's a, it's a work done. And of course, it's not even done that well. All right. Um, evening and morning has been our hymn all week. And I think it's appropriate then we have uh, uh, maybe a little summary of what's going on here so that you know where it came from. Paul Gerhardt, 1607 to 76, was the greatest German hymn writer of the 17th century. The remarkably difficult times in his life due mostly to the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 48, gave him vast resources to use in his hymn writing. His hymns continue to serve as a source of comfort in hard times and a means of praise for Christians. Evident in this hymn and others by Gerhardt is his constant concern for the teaching and witness of historic Christianity through his confessional Lutheranism. As someone who lived on the cusp of pietism, which emphasized the state of an individual's relationship with God, Gerhardt also wrote texts employing first-person language with a concern for the needs of the individual and personal piety. He fused these two perspectives, pre-pietism and confessional Lutheranism, together to create hymns that lost sight neither of God as the object of corporate worship nor the key teachings of the Church. With a tune by Johann Georg Ebeling, Johann Kruger's successor at the, as cantor at St. Nicholas Kirche in Berlin, Evening and Morning first appeared in the third uh, fascicle of Ebeling's Pauli Gerhardi Geistliche Andachten, Paul Gerhardt's Spiritual Prayers, published in 1666. The hymn has been described as, quote, a splendid hymn of our poet Golden as the sun going forth in its, his beauty, full of force and of blessed peace in the Lord, full of sparkling thoughts about God. Several poets have translated the hymn, often neglecting the theological content of Gerhardt's original text. These translations include The Golden Sunbeams with Their Joyous Gleams by Catherine Winkworth, The Sun's Golden Beams by Catherine Hannah Dunn, Sunbeams All Golden by Frances Elizabeth Cox, What Is Our Mortal Race by Edward Massey, and The Golden Morning also by Edward Massey. But by far the most popular and theologically most accurate translation is Richard Massey's Evening and Morning from the 1857 of Paul Mercer's, or William Mercer's, Church Psalter and Hymn Book. Richard Massey, 1887, was no stranger to German hymns. His translations of Martin Luther's Spiritual Songs of 1854 was already popular. Following Massey's version, the LSB translation begins with Gerhardt's original stanza four. LSB combines two stanzas by Massey with two by Hermann Bruckner, 1866-1942, that were written in 1918. All right, so the melody is almost identical to the original 1666 source, except for slight rhythmic differences. Um, textual differences, it's just, like I said, these combination of, um, and some just modification of the language slightly. All right, good. So let's sing it. Evening and morning.
Okay, we do have a commemoration today, and let me see, it is, oh yes, Henry Melchior Muhlenberg, uh, pastor, which seems like an interesting one to include, doesn't it? Like, who is Henry Melchior Muhlenberg? That doesn't seem like anybody I've heard before. All right, and that would be, um, well, here we are. Today we remember the tireless efforts of Henry Melchior Muhlenberg, pastor, to establish and strengthen and provide for congregations of the Lutheran confession in North America in the 18th century. All right. Uh, though he was not the first Lutheran in North America, Henry Muhlenberg was the first to endeavor to establish the Lutheran church and gather the scattered Lutherans into their own church body. Born on September 6, 1711, in the Duchy of Brunswick, Muhlenberg studied theology at Göttingen. He was ordained in Leipzig in 1739 and worked for a few years in an orphanage. But in 1741, he accepted a call from the German-speaking Lutherans in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He and his wife and family moved to America. In this land, Muhlenberg truly came into his own. He worked tirelessly to plant and strengthen Lutheran congregations, traveling far and wide through the colonies. He led the effort to create the first organization for Lutheran pastors in America, the Ministerium of Pennsylvania and adjacent states, founded in 1748. He imparted to that organization his own zeal for missions. He valued greatly the gift of music and worship, at times serving as his own organist. He led the 
preparation of the first American Lutheran liturgy translated from German into English, to which very clearly our later common service was indebted. That's Divine Service setting three for us today. His dream was that one day there would be one Lutheran hymn book, one Lutheran liturgy used by one Lutheran church in all of North America. That dream still awaits its fulfillment. Poor health at last curtailed his efforts and forced his retirement from the ministry. He died in 1787 in Trappy, Pennsylvania. He was buried with Augustus, are buried within Augustus Lutheran Church next to his beloved wife. Yet before his death, he had seen his work here bear significant fruit. He left behind a distinctly American Lutheran Church. It's also worthy of note that his sons were prominent in the government of the early days of the United States. A statue of his son John Peter stands in the crypt at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and a portrait of his son Frederick, the first Speaker of the House, hangs in the lobby of the House of Representatives. His daughter Maria married a U.S. congressman, and his daughter Eve was eventually the mother of the governor of Pennsylvania, John Schultze. We pray. Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd of your people, we give you thanks for your servant Henry Melchior Muhlenberg, who was faithful in the care and nurture of the flock entrusted to him. So they may follow his example and the teaching of his holy life, give strength to the pastors today who shepherd your flock, so that by your grace your people may grow into the fullness of life intended for them in paradise. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, we pray today for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray today in Thanksgiving with Brandon and Tara, celebrate their birthdays, with Maya, Sovereign, and Donna celebrating their baptism, the households of our church, especially Jeremy, Terry, Jerry, and Marla, Dennis, Brian, and Eric. Uh, we pray in Thanksgiving with Marcy at the gift of healing and Allie and Teresa as communicant members. Pray for our catechumens. Pray for those ill receiving treatment and recovering. Pray for our homebound. Pray for our missions and mercy work, especially that of Orphan Grain Train. We pray um, in intercession for Jocelyn, who will be receiving the gift of baptism on Monday. Continue to pray for all those grieving, especially the family friends of Kelsey and Diane. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, that's our congregation of prayer for today, Saturday, October 7th, 2023. It's good to have you with us here. Um, I hope you can uh, join us for divine service tomorrow, still at 9 a.m. for the rest of the month, not until November. We switch then to 9.30. Uh, so, yeah, 9 o'clock tomorrow, Divine Service, Bible study following, and uh, men's ministry tomorrow as well at uh, at noon. All right, so I hope you can come on out, and uh, yeah, have a blessed day. See ya.
We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.